0: you're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and stolen lands of the Musqueam people. We are committed to ensuring Indigenous women's rights to health and safety and the equal opportunity to participate in a manner that recognizes and respects Indigenous cultures and traditions.
1: Hello welcome to another episode of Women's Health Interrupted. I'm Sarah Williscraft, And I'm Chevy Mehra. Today we are going to be discussing female sexual health and empowerment with Dr. Lori Brado. Dr. Lori Brado is a professor in the UBC Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and a registered psychologist in Vancouver, Canada. She has been the Executive Director of the Women's Health Research Institute since 2016. Dr. Brado holds a Canada Research Chair in Women's Sexual Health, and her research focuses on testing mindfulness-based interventions for women with sexual dysfunction and those who experience chronic genital pain. Her book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, How Women Can Cultivate Desire, is a trade book of her research demonstrating the benefits of mindfulness for women's sexual concerns. Thank you
0: so much, Dr. Brado, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Brado, for over 15 years, you know, you've studied different aspects of women's sexuality, sexual desire, causes and effects. What are some of the most interesting revelations and research that you've come across during this process?
2: So many findings. I mean, first of all, when I started doing research on women's sexual health, which was the year that Viagra was approved in men, 1999 in Canada, very little was known about the contributors to sexual desire and arousal, how to cultivate these things, how to give people effective treatments. So over the years, it's really been these kinds of questions emerging out of my clinical practice that have guided the kinds of research topics that I do. So yeah, again, there's so many interesting findings. I think, you know, one of the the really interesting findings that has guided much of my work is that sexual desire can be cultivated. It's not something that is uh, fixed and unwavering. It's not something that's like a light switch that you turn on and on or off. It's something that is very responsive to context, to internal emotions and external triggers. And it is something that can be elicited or cultivated over the course of a person's life. So, just that one finding alone that our historic understanding of the nature of sexual desire was wrong has been both fascinating and guided a lot of the work that I do. You
0: mentioned the cultivation of sexual desire. Could you talk a bit?
2: more about how it can be cultivated in the first place? So I've been primarily interested in mindfulness-based interventions, and your listeners will probably be familiar with what mindfulness is. It's really kind of made its way into modern day healthcare, but even just everyday discussions. And mindfulness is really a practice that involves present moment, non-judgmental awareness. So it's a skill that we can cultivate. And what our research has found is given that low sexual desire, especially in women, is often perpetuated by stress and distractions and catastrophizing and negative judgments and worries about how the sexual encounter will go, also just kind of everyday distractions, minds being everywhere but the present moment, That is why we've adapted mindfulness, which for a long time has been applied mostly to managing pain and managing anxiety and managing depression. And we've applied it directly to these difficulties that people face when they have sexual dysfunction. So, and of course, the research has been fantastic. We've found that it's feasible, that people will do the exercises, that they'll keep doing the exercises even a year later and that they really work to elicit sexual desire and reduce sexual distress. So mindfulness is definitely one way of cultivating desire, but once we accept that desire looks much like other emotions, right? So we feel sad when negative things happen to us, we feel happy when positive things happen to us. The same happens with desire. So from that perspective, another way to cultivate desire is is to influence the environment that would then elicit sexual desire. So things like making sure that the kinds of stimulation that a person receives are appropriate for cultivating desire, making sure that the blocks in the environment that get in the way of desire, like worrying about kids walking in, worrying about the meeting you have tomorrow, like making sure that those things are not blocking the cultivation of desire. And those are all things that are very much within our reach.
1: And I think that perfectly leads to our next question about the quote unquote orgasm gap which you talk about in numerous articles you've written over the years. Can you tell us what this is and what factors contribute to it?
2: The notion of the orgasm gap comes out of the much more common notion of the gender gap and it's just in recognition that like when we when we look at the binary of men versus women that there are a lot of domains where men historically have quote fared better than women have. So in in terms of um you know what we know just about kind of health and biology and medications and health promotion and treatments and all of that we simply know a lot more about men's health than we do about women's health and I think that's why this particular podcast has really been seeking to close that gap. When we extend that to sexuality those same gender differences happen when it comes to orgasm. So why is that? Why is it that men have more frequent orgasms than women, that they're easier to reach than women? I mean there's so many reasons. One really obvious reason is that there's been a very long-standing historic negative stigma that has clouded women's sexuality. You know, thank you, Freud, for declaring to the world that clitoral orgasms point to immature development in women, right? That was kind of Freud's psychosexual stages of development. That if you if you could just reach clitoral orgasms, that was a sign of immaturity and development. And so even though today we kind of refute those theories, they have this long-standing legacy. That has meant that women have grown up with shame around touching their bodies, that they've grown up with the inability to ask for what they want to feel good, that they simply grow up with, frankly, wrong information, such as vaginal orgasms is are the be all end all and, and, and clitoral orgasms mean that there's something wrong or broken with you. So those are some of the reasons that contribute to this orgasm gap. I think having more conversations around normalizing women's sexual pleasure Talking about the health promoting effects of masturbation and orgasm in women are a really important part of reversing that and closing that gap.
0: You know, speaking of shame, growing up in India, just engaging in any form of sexual intercourse is such a taboo. And there aren't even conversations about pleasure or masturbation or exploring your sexuality as women because there's so much shame attached to the idea of pleasure and orgasm and such. And I was really jazzed about listening to your conversation about orgasm on We Can Do Hard Things by Glennon Doyle podcast and you mentioned how, you know, women do experience arousal but feel stuck in their heads when it comes to sex. And I'm wondering if you could talk about some of the personal beliefs about sex which can create, you know,
2: struggles in our sex lives and where do they stem from? So we've tackled one and one of them pertains to desire, this idea that you know you either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you know the only way to fix it is a medication. And that's highly problematic because as we've talked about already, the fact that desire is responsive, it emerges, it's cultivated, it's not a light switch. It's more like a dimmer. It's like a dimmer lever that goes up and down. So that's a really big one. There's so many age-related myths around female sexuality too, like you know, it goes down with age. And once you hit menopause, it's gone. And old women don't have sex and old women don't fantasize. And I mean, every one of these that I'm rattling off is a myth. And we have data as well as anecdotal experience that directly counters them. Where do they come from? I think it's part of that historic, longstanding legacy that women are either nymphomaniacs or frigid. And those were the kind of two two classifications that women were put into. So if you thought about sex too much, you were a quote nympho, uh, which was an actual diagnosis that was given and is used in a really pejorative way still to this day. Um, or you were frigid if you didn't want sex enough or if you said no to a partner. There was no room in between for consent for asking for what you want for, you know, maybe one day I do one day I don't like there wasn't just no room for that. And um, I think that is why having conversations like this, where we equip people with facts and science and information, to help them appreciate that number one, they're totally normal. And number two, that you know, we need to counter these myths in order to really kind of find our own sexual wellness, if you will, our own sexual energy. And in your work researching this topic and thinking about some of these
0: conversations, have you noticed any differences in how we were
2: in the past versus how we are now in terms of dismantling these myths? Some yes and some no. And I think it's because my timeline has been too short. I've only been doing sex research for 20 years. So, you know, what I have seen in 20 years is funding agencies more willing to fund studies on sexuality beyond just focusing on treating the disease of sexuality, but, you know, granting agencies that will fund projects that look at what is pleasure and what is sexual well-being and how does it impact a relationship. So there we've definitely seen some progress. We have also... You know, in the domain of sex education in schools, that's kind of gone all over the place. It's gone up and down. We have, you know, periods of time where we hear much more about good comprehensive sex ed being taught in the school, including female genital anatomy, including, you know, what are the different types of orgasm and then There's a change in government, and that kind of regresses back to, you know, pre-1950s level. So I think I'm optimistic about some of the signs of improvement, but we still have a long way to go.
1: You use the term non-concordance to describe mind and body separation, and you also talk about how non-concordance stems from stress and compulsive
2: multitasking. Can you expand on this a little bit? So non-concordance primarily came out of the psychophysiological literature. And so in our, you know, in our lab setting, we have the ability to measure both physiological sexual response. So people come in, they insert a vaginal probe called a vaginal photoplethysmograph. They sit on a comfy recliner, they watch some erotic films, and this little probe provides an indirect measure of physical sexual response. So the amount of Light that gets backscattered from the vaginal wall, which is a correlate of kind of blood flow pooling into the genital area, gives this quote objective measure of sexual arousal. I say in you know big quotes because it's just basically what the body is doing. And at the same time, while the participant is sitting in the chair and watching the erotic films, they're using a little lever that they move back and forth to correspond with how turned on they are in their mind. Then we as researchers look at the degree of agreement between what the body is doing while they watch the films with what their mind is saying. And nine times out of 10, in women, you find that there is low agreement between physiological and, and self-reported arousal. So it might be that the person's watching the film and the body's showing you know, a massive physiological response and their self-report is meh <laughs> or I'm mildly turned on but not hugely turned on. So that's where the discordance term came from. Is this phenomenon that happens real time that there's not this good synchrony between physiological and self-reported response. But we can extrapolate that lab finding into real everyday lives and as a clinician, you know, who does sex therapy, this is pretty much what I hear from from my patients who are seeking treatment. They'll say, yeah, I lubricate and yeah, I feel pulsing in my vagina, but I'm thinking about my shopping list or I'm worried about how I smell or I'm thinking about, did I turn the stove off or sex hurts? And I'm just thinking to myself, I want to get this over with. So that discordance between physical response and emotional response definitely plays out in the real life sexual encounters that a lot of people experience and is largely the reason why I've been interested in mindfulness techniques as a way of bridging those two. Because one of the things that we do in mindfulness is we bring full awareness to the body and the sensations in the body and away from the distractions, the negative storylines, the catastrophizing. And indeed, what our research has found is that by integrating these two, which we can measure through interoception, um, there's different ways of measuring interoception, but interoception basically means bringing together the mind and the body and bringing more awareness of the mind to what's happening in the body, that improvements in interoception directly underlie or mediate in statistical terms, the improvements that we see in sexual desire after people do a mindfulness program. Do you think these distractions disproportionately affect women?
0: And if so, what do you think maybe the root causes for that?
2: You know, it's a tricky question to answer because I don't want to reinforce gender stereotypes of, you know, women being distractible and, you know, not able to focus. And this is something that cognitive scientists have been studying and I've been following that science and it kind of goes back and forth all over the place that. While there is evidence that women are more likely to multitask than men are, and there probably are hormonal reasons for that, neurophysiological reasons, there's probably very sociocultural gendered reasons for that. So if we look at the kind of heteronormative script of the woman who, in addition to having her regular tasks, she's maintaining the household, she's scheduling the doctor's appointments, she's driving kids to soccer, she's, you know planning the parties, all of that. So that kind of multitasking tends to happen more by, by women than by men. Again, that's just kind of part of the heterosexual script. Doesn't fit same-sex attracted people or in other kind of relationship configurations, some of those heteronormative scripts don't fit. So I just want to preface this by saying I'm really talking about, say, the, the mixed gender pairing where that where that, that is happening. So there, there probably is some kind of cultural and gendered explanations for why women multitask more and then there's probably some physiological explanations as well that you know when again men are engaging in sex the kind of feedback from the body is so much more obvious to them. Men know when they have an erection right they can conceal it see it they can feel it they know it intimately it's been celebrated it's been rewarded throughout their life and you ask that same question of women do you know when your body is physically aroused do you know when you are lubricating? Many of them will have no idea and they'll say, well, I know if I put my hand there and sense it, but I just, I don't know it kind of intuitively. What is the relationship between pleasure and sexual empowerment? Pleasure is the measure, right? Pleasure has been the missing frontier in much of our research on sexuality. In my own lab, we have three studies that we're doing right now on pleasure because our field has recognized that we've been ignoring this. You know, lack of pleasure is the reason why people go to treatment. Lack of pleasure is the reason why people don't wear condoms. So, pleasure really has been missing from our science, from our conversation. And we've been, I think, almost even over focusing on the more, quote, functional parts like intensity of desire number of orgasms so pleasure has been really key really recommend that your listeners read adrian marie brown's book pleasure activism which is just a mind-blowing tour de force around the role of pleasure in our life like beyond orgasms and beyond sexual wellness how pleasure shows up in our day-to-day interactions and how our connection with our pleasure guides our self-identity. And uh, again, how we carry ourselves in many domains of our life. So I'm really excited about our own work on pleasure now. One of my PhD students is developing a measure of sexual pleasure. And I have another student who is developing a bit of a psychoeducational intervention for people on what does pleasure look like, how do you cultivate it, some facts around sexual pleasure. So I'm super excited about that. And others are also doing work on sexual pleasure too, which I'm really looking forward to. And what do you think
0: women can do to care for their sexual health and feel more empowered? And I know you also published a book on better sex through mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So if you could reference that, that would be
2: wonderful. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm so thrilled to be having this conversation with you today. So one thing that a listener can do is mention this recording to a friend or if you, you know, post it on your social media, encourage people that you know and care about and trust to create a space to have conversations about sexual pleasure and sexual wellness. Part of the reason why I wrote the first book, Better Sex Through Mindfulness, was because the experiences of our research participants in our scientific studies was so profound and positive. And, you know, many of them said to me, all right, Dr. Broddle, besides your peer reviewed publication, how are you going to get this information out there? And I never thought I would write a book, but it was really the urging of those participants that said, yeah, this information shouldn't just stay buried in peer reviewed journals. So that's why I wrote the 2018 book. And then after that book came out, I had a whole bunch of people around the world contact me and say, okay, you've convinced me that mindfulness is part of the kind of sexual well being picture. How do I do it? So then I wrote the Better Sex Through Mindfulness workbook, which just came out at the end of 2022. And it provides all the skills and walks people through the exercises on how they might practice this in their own lives.
1: Thank you, Dr. Brado, for joining us and to our listeners for
0: tuning in. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network, the University of British Columbia, and everyone that has donated to the Women's Health Research Cluster for their support of this project. If you want to help transform women's health on a global scale, donate to the Women's Health Research Cluster today at www.womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. If you liked the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts on. To be notified when new episodes drop, every second Wednesday of the month. And check out our show notes online to dig into the resources we talked about today. We also have other exciting women's health research being shared on our Women's Health blog and through events like the Women's Health Seminar Series. So make sure to head over to our website at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca to learn more. Until next time, I'm Chavi Mehra. And I'm Sarah Williscraft. Thanks for listening.
2: This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network.